Let's take our Bibles. We're going to be studying this morning something that Jesus said to us that really represents the most challenging and the most demanding calling that we have as a believer. This is not an easy passage and it's not an easy study because Jesus calls us to something that is uh, remarkable in its scope and challenging to us as, as humans. When we talk about Christianity, there are, there are certain applications that we have out of the Word, about obeying the Word, and about walking by faith, and about sharing the Gospel with others, and, and other things. But, but really, in a sense, those pale in comparison to how difficult this commission from the Lord is. And unfortunately, we can't look at these two passages we're going to look at this morning and and say that Jesus is speaking metaphorically because he's not. He's speaking very literally and he is very blunt. He's very straightforward. He doesn't mince words. There's not a lot of wiggle room in what he's saying. It's not open to interpretation that if we see it a certain way that we can interpret a certain way. This is very straightforward. And while that may seem... Uh, kind of a strong opening, maybe that seems a little little harsh or a little intimidating this morning, um, it's not. This is, this is the calling that we have. This is not a calling that's reserved for those that have, have a special assignment from the Lord like the apostles did and, and were called to a certain level of commitment. This is what Jesus defines as being his disciple. Now, I hope we all want to be Jesus' disciples this morning. I hope that's a calling that, that we happily embrace. We trust Christ as our Savior, and we know that we're indwelt by His Holy Spirit. So this is a joy. It's a, it's a privilege to be called a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we have an assignment. We're called to go into the world and make more disciples. So we would all, I think, if we're believers this morning, uh, see ourselves as disciples. What's interesting, as Jesus defines it in the New Testament, and as the word is defined in the New Testament, is the disciple is not so much uh, defined by what we believe or the fact that we're covered by the blood of Jesus and redeemed. A disciple in the New Testament is defined by what we do as a result of that belief. So to be a disciple is an action. To be saved is something that God does for us and we receive by faith. But to then go on to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is the action that we take in response to that belief. Now, even Jesus defined it that way. He said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And he said, my father's glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and therefore prove that you are my disciples. In other words, faith establishes us as his children but our actions distinguish us as his disciples. And that's an important distinction that we have to make because that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And you've probably already turned, but if you haven't, we're in Matthew chapter 10. This passage is somewhat of a turning point in this gospel because Jesus, at the start of Matthew 10, sends out the 12 to go do the work of ministry. And he gives them special power and special authority to do many of the things that he did, to, to heal and to minister to people and to cast out demons and to, to cure sickness. I mean, it's kind of a 
it's kind of a very interesting uh, time now for the disciples that they're not just walking along with him and listening and, and feeding the 5,000, things like that, kind of, kind of being there as his servants. Now he says, you're going to have some of the power that I have, and you're going to go out and do some of the same things that I've done. But even as they're equipped with that power, he warns them then over the next 38 verses, starting in verse 5, that what they're going to do in representing him and serving him is not going to be easy both in terms of the spiritual and cultural opposition that they're going to run to, but also in terms of the way that our mind fights against this calling. Our, our humanity reacts and kind of resists what he's calling us to. Now, the second part of that is far more challenging to me than the first. But Jesus starts by defining what a disciple is, by telling us about the nature of the opposition. I want to just glide through this real quick as, as context, because as we saw Tuesday, context is key, right? You have to, you have to figure out what comes before and what, at, what comes after to know why this passage is here. So let's just uh, kind of skim through it. In verse 16, he says that they and we are going out as sheep among wolves. We have to always remember that this is the atmosphere of discipleship. As we go out as believers, as we serve him, we have to remember that we are in the minority and we are increasingly in the minority. And that those who stand against Jesus Christ, those who, who oppose the gospel, are, are aggressively ravenous to try to, to defeat the influence of salvation and of the gospel. Now that's been more visibly true, I think, over the last few years and that push is going to get stronger because now you sense that that those who don't love Jesus Christ and those who oppose Jesus Christ ha have sensed that they've gained some ground. And they've sensed that, that now they can start to really push against what the Bible talks about and what we believe. And, and here's the problem. The voices of Christian leadership are largely silent. And that's different than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago with the generation that's now starting to die off. We, at that point because we don't have strong voices in Christian leadership standing against uh, the, the opposition of Christianity, that now falls upon the church. And that really is where it fell when Jesus gave us the commission. Jesus never said to us, go into all the world and wait for your Christian leaders to be the ones who take a stand so you'll have power, did he? Is that what Acts 1.8 says? Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be the witnesses. In other words, let's not wait for anybody to stand up for us. Let's be the ones who stand up. Let's be the ones who, who trust in the sufficiency and help of God and are confident in the protection of the Holy Spirit because the protection of the Holy Spirit is enough. And let's be the ones who go out and teach the gospel. Then we're going to see the second source of opposition, and that's going to be people, and this is in verse 17, People who desire to stop our spiritual growth and stop our spiritual influence. The fact that they oppose Christianity so strongly shows how effective it is when we present the gospel. And it shows how effective it is when, when we serve the Lord the way we're called to serve. Because the enemy fights it. The enemy can't stand it. And that raises the question that we've asked before, that if what we believe about Jesus Christ and about the gospel is not true, and why does anybody care? Why not just let us look stupid? 
Why not just let us look like we're crazy and that we believe in some myth that God would come down in flesh and would die for us and would rise again and that we trust in him. We don't, we don't have to perform a bunch of good works, that we just trust in him and that he will deliver us for all eternity. If that's so crazy and that believing in Jesus Christ is, is so weird, then just let us go. Let us look like a bunch of crazy people. But we have to ask, why are other religions tolerated? Why are other religions given latitude? Why are other religions promoted while Christianity is resisted and denied at every turn? The reason is, is that because mankind is sinful and we do need a savior and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And we really are saved by his grace through faith in him alone. And even though that's the most compelling and life-giving truth that mankind can hear, many people hate it. Because the enemy hates it. And because he turns hearts against God, he teaches people to love themselves. Which is why as we go out as disciples, and as we go out as witnesses, we are going to constantly face people who oppose the Lord because they love themselves instead of loving God. And you know what? That was us once. Before Christ captured our heart and redeemed us, that was us. Jesus says to them in the verses that follow, 18, 19, 20, look at it. He says, you're going to be delivered to crowds and scourged in synagogues, which is an amazing statement on the spiritual state of Israel that they would go in the place of worship and beat those who are closest to him. And then he says, you were brought before the rulers. That would happen in Acts 4. But I want you to testify about me. I want you to be so full of the word, verse 20, so full of the word and so full of the spirit, so committed to the work of ministry that you're just going to open your mouth and the spirit's going to speak through you. And you're going to be strong and powerful, not because you're capable men, not because you have some kind of special courage, but because you're close to the Lord and the Spirit's going to work through you, and people are going to hate that. But that's part of the experience. That's part of what it is to follow me and serve me. And you should be concerned less about people and more about the one who drags people to hell. But we're not overwhelmed by this. and We're not discouraged by this, and we're not scared of this, because God is sufficient, and he can supply all our needs. Now, with all of that context, and I know that was a little long, Jesus then defines what it means to be a disciple. And I want to pick up the text in verse 32, and we're going to look at a couple things here, and then we'll move over to Luke chapter 9. Start in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 
Those are not easy words, are they? Jesus is defining what it means to live as a disciple. I want to give you a couple things here that, that he says in the text that will help set up the context for what we're going to look at in a minute. The first thing that he defines a disciple as is someone who confesses Christ. A disciple of Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, confesses him. It begins with an outward profession of our faith. When we receive the gift of God's grace, it is to be an outward profession. Even if it's done in private, even if it's a moment between you and the Lord where you finally cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. I receive your grace. I'm sorry for my sins. I I accept salvation. I trust in Jesus Christ to do that. Even if that's a moment in private, we are then to acknowledge it publicly. This is why baptism is so important and so necessary for a believer because it is a public statement of what has happened privately in our heart. So he says there must be an outward confession, but that's not the only confession. Now there is an ongoing confession that is the mark of a disciple where we stand for him. And he says in the text that where there's reticence or or unwillingness or or there's some degree of embarrassment that, that we won't identify ourselves with Christ and talk boldly about the gospel. Where, where that is true, listen now, he says, if you show that kind of indifference toward me, then I'm going to show that kind of indifference toward you. And that's where we get chills up our back. That's where we say, well, well, well wait a second. He, he claimed us as his own, and, and he put his name on us. We're called Christians, followers of Christ. So, so, so how would he do that? Well, he makes it very clear. You need to confess me before men. And you need to acknowledge that I have ownership of your life. And if you do that, I will acknowledge to the Father that I have ownership of you. But this is a reciprocal and conditional promise. He says just the opposite is true. If you're not willing to confess me, and in fact, if you deny me, I will deny you. I will act like I don't even know you. That is how serious the calling is to stand for him. That we must confess him. Now the second attribute he says here is that a disciple, and this is in verse uh, 34 and beyond, a disciple recognizes the effect of sin and self. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. Everybody looks at Jesus and they say, well, God is love and Jesus is peace and he just wants everybody to be happy. This is the twisting of the gospel by our culture. He wants everybody to happy, so he's not going to judge. He's not going to, he wouldn't condemn anybody. How could a God who loves condemn anybody? Because he just, he just wants us to all smile. Jesus is not what I came. I didn't come to declare peace. Do whatever you want. It's good. We're fine. We're in, we're in good relationship. There's no problem here because even though you're sinners, I'm just going to, I'm just going to look the other way. He says, I came with a sword. In other words, I'm going to hold people accountable. Now, the world doesn't like being held accountable. That's not how they define love. 
they define love as you'll just accept whatever I want to do. If you really love me, you'll let me do what I want. That's why the divorce rate's so high. That's why teen pregnancy rates are so high. That's why abortion rates are so high. That's why everything is skewed because love has been corrupted by our culture. The fact is, the Lord is loving and he's kind and he's gracious. But that doesn't mean that he's just going to look the other way and unconditionally accept everybody no matter what they do. He came for the purpose of demanding accountability for our sin and a response to our righteousness. So he says, I came with a sword and I want to cut away sin and I want to cut away pride and I want to cut away self-righteousness. But you don't have to try to save yourself. I will save you if you will put those aside and trust in me. But when we do that, listen now, it creates a negative reaction from other people. It's like a person who's sleeping in a dark room and you shine a light right in their face. And they go, ah, how are you doing? That, that's what righteousness does for the person who's caught in sin. Spiritual transformation is powerful and it's supposed to be obvious and it creates a distinct separation from the world. So he says, those of you who are going to trust in me, we're going to have a problem because there's going to be conflict even in your family. Some of you experience that on a daily basis. Because of your faith in Christ, you have conflict with other people in your family who, who criticize and ridicule and mock you because you believe in Jesus and go to that crazy church in the hotel. Jesus says that's going to happen. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised if people hate you and ridicule you because of your faith. That's part of it. That's what he came to do. Because he calls people to accountability. The disciple recognizes that. And third, look at the third distinction. A disciple loves the Lord more than anything. To follow Jesus Christ, we have to decide who we love more. Do we love him or do we love other people? And that includes us. Do I love the Lord more or do I love myself more? Do I love the Lord more or do I love my wife and kids more? Do I love the Lord more or do I love my mom and dad and my sister and brother and my family and my church and people around me? Do I, do I love them more or do I love the Lord more? Jesus says the qualification here is tough. And he adds to it in verse 38 by saying that love is proven by self-sacrifice. Your love will be proven when you take up your cross and follow me. We'll define that in a minute. See, love carries the reality of the abandonment of rights and the abandonment of control and the abandonment of self. Jesus proved that. Philippians 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he set aside his rights and he went to the cross to prove his love for us. Now, if he was willing to do that for those who are undeserving, he says, if you're not willing to do the same for me, and I am deserving, if you're not willing to yield your rights and submit your control and die to self, to the one who has paid the price of sin and secured you forever, if you're not willing to show me the same love I've shown to you, then you're not worthy of me. 
Now, again, there's no way to nuance that or, 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 or reconstruct that to fit our bias. That is what it is. If you don't love me the way I love you, then I don't want to talk to you. You say, well, Paul, come on, that's harsh. Uh, it's not my words, it's his. I'm fighting with it too. That we are supposed to love the Lord with everything we have, with our heart and soul and mind and strength. There's nothing to be held back. Why? Because He first loved us and He didn't have to. He says, look at the love I've shown. I want you to love me back. Now that has a cost. And there's no mistaking that being a disciple has a cost. It has conditions. Confess Christ. Love the Lord. Take up your cross. Follow me. And not only are those not easy from a human standpoint, remember the series is called Out of the Comfort Zone. This is not easy. Everybody's a little squeamish and squirmy right now, right? Can you back off just a little bit and tell me something happy? This is happy. The fact that we get to love the Lord, the fact that we get to be called His disciples, that's worthy of praise. We should all stand up and cheer. That, that, that alone is all we need. So to talk about the cost, if we think the cost is too hard, we just look at the cross. The cost is not too hard to us. It was hard to Him. He delivered us and exonerated us and redeemed us and forgave us and secured us forever and then said, here's my spirit. You can have that. So, so if we come back and say, well, that's too much of a cost. He goes, what are you talking about? I paid the cost. I'm just saying, follow me. In Acts, the disciples, though, felt that discomfort. They, 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 they felt that, that nervousness. What now? Jesus had left them. The opposition was direct. But what's so exciting about the book of Acts is that they not only overcame the cost, they were thrilled about it. They were joyful and confident and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And church, this morning, we should not expect anything less in our own lives. We can have the same joy, the same power, the same confidence, the same effectiveness in ministry. Listen now, this is truth. We can have the same things that the apostles had in Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and beyond. We can have the same experience they had because there's nothing left that we can't experience that they didn't experience. And yet the church by and large in America especially is anemic and weak. And we'll talk about why in a second. We, 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 we're just, we're, we're almost powerless and you look at Acts 2 and you say, you'll receive power. And the, and the church had great power and effectiveness. And people got saved. And, and, they, and their lives were transformed. And they testified about it. And they walked around with confidence and said, you can't stop us from talking. What are you talking about? We're going to heal people. We're going to help people. We're going to teach people about the Lord. You can't stop us. Fine. You want to put us in jail? We'll keep talking. And yet the church today, we look at it, we're like, oh, I don't know. World's getting scary. World was scary then. We have the same 
power because we have the same spirit. And we actually have an advantage over them. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're not being persecuted daily and threatened daily. It may be coming, but not yet. Now, here's why they thrive. Let me give you two quick reasons. Here's why they thrived. One, they were fully dependent. Fully dependent on the power, leading, and work of the Holy Spirit to guide them. Even at the expense of their own comfort and their own control, they were fully dependent on the Spirit. And second, they were fully committed to prayer. That's what caused them to be yielded to the Spirit. That's what caused their hearts to be soft and pliable before the Lord. And it's what caused them to hear from Him. Now, church, if we can get to that, if this can be our focus, if we can be fully dependent on the Spirit of God, not on our own control, not on our own strategies, not our own plans, and if we can be a church that is known for prayer, there is absolutely zero reason why we can't have the same effectiveness in our ministry and the same power and boldness and blessing of God on our ministry and on our lives. There's no reason. And we have to believe that. And we need that word of encouragement because this is not just some some idealistic pipe dream that's nice to imagine. The secret is so simple and yet everything in our human minds kind of argues otherwise. And the problem we've seen is, is that these two secrets have not been emphasized in the Christian church, especially in America, over the last 25 years. In fact, just the opposite, they have been criticized and de-emphasized. Instead of saying we're going to yield to the Spirit, we say let's, let's manage and micromanage and control and, 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 and organize and make sure nothing's out of place. And instead of calling on the Lord in prayer, we've avoided prayer. And guess what? The church has no power. The church has no power. If we can get back to that, we will see the power of being a disciple. And there's no question that it has a cost. Let's not miss the fact that there is a cost. But let's also not miss the fact that that cost is nothing. The cost is nothing compared to the power and sufficiency and strength of God. In fact, in comparison to the power of God, the problems that we're going to look at in just a moment seem like a joke. If we are living as disciples of Jesus Christ, these things that I'm about to give you won't even be a problem. So what's the hesitation? Why are we reticent? Why are we fearful in some ways of being a disciple? Let me give you four costs of being a disciple. Number one, the first cost of being a disciple is that our human nature is constantly fighting against it. Our human nature is constantly fighting against it. Sacrifice, dependence, love, denying self, taking up our cross, walking in holiness, those aren't human things to do. Those aren't naturally human. So our pride screams, no, don't do that. 
Don't, don't listen to what Jesus said. Don't listen to his word. He's calling you to something you can't possibly do. And how's that going to look? And how are you possibly going to maintain that? But, but here's the problem. Our pride can't defeat one fact. And the fact is that if people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, our pride can't refute the fact that we have been given a new nature. Remember last week? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. We have been given a new nature that's righteous and it's set apart and it's directed by the Holy Spirit. And our new nature does not report to our old nature. Our new nature does not answer to our old nature because our old nature no longer has control over us. So while our pride demands its place and while temptation still thrives about us and while sin keeps appealing to us, even though as we get older it appeals less and less, even though all those things keep screaming, pay attention to me, give me a place, we're not captive. And we're not controlled by it. And we do not have to yield to it. We live under the control of the Holy Spirit. And he's the one we answer to. So when temptation comes calling this week and sin keeps demanding its place and pride keeps saying, what about me? You just say, what about you? I don't answer to you. I answer to the Holy Spirit. I answer to the one who's redeemed me. First cost of human nature is continuously fighting against it. Second, second cost of being a disciple is that our motives will always be questioned by others. People will think that we're proud because of our beliefs or that we're closed-minded because of our convictions. They even may even think it's inappropriate to tell other people about Jesus Christ. I was listening to talk radio, of all things, yesterday, and I heard the two sports hosts, and they were debating this issue. And their conclusion was that religion is personal and you should never proselytize anybody. That it's for you. Don't talk to other people about it. Leave them alone. Now, we need to be aware of that because that's the attitude of the world toward the gospel. And we need to genuinely seek the Lord's help and say, Lord, how do we break through that? Because there's a wall there that people have placed where they said, don't talk to me about your faith. I don't want to hear it. You don't have that right. But it doesn't change the fact that that's our calling. The best way we can break through to people is to genuinely love them and to be broken for those who don't yet know Christ and to stay close to the gospel and close to the word of God. Because when we stay close to the word of God, it prevents us from advancing our opinions. And it's a very fine line when we have conviction that we don't let it slip into our convictions. Well, I think this is right. I think this is right. Well, make sure that that's what the Word of God says. Make sure that's what the Spirit of God is telling you to say rather than how you're feeling in the frustration of the moment. Third, our character will be under constant scrutiny. First of all, our human nature is going to fight against it. Second of all, our motives are going to be questioned. Third, our character is going to be under scrutiny. Those who oppose the Lord are going to look for any inconsistency. They're going to look for any hypocrisy. The reason is they want to come to the conclusion, they want to have their, their thought backed up that Christ doesn't really transform lives, that the gospel is a joke, 
that what we believe is not real. So if they can see inconsistency in our lives, they will say, see, I told you it's not real. The best way to diffuse that is to walk worthy of our faith. Church, we've got to walk more worthy every day of our faith. And we've got to be controlled by love and not give anybody a reason to accuse us of inconsistency. Romans 12 says, let your love be without hypocrisy, that we should be kindly affectionate toward one another and prefer one another and not be slothful, but serve the Lord. The more genuine our love is and the more we walk in holiness and are faithful to our calling, the more the power of salvation and regeneration in our own lives is going to come through and it's going to knock down that wall that the devil's put up and people are going to say, I can't resist it anymore. What is your deal? And then we say, let me tell you about my deal. Let me tell you about what the Lord's done. You think this is my doing? No way. You know me well enough. The Lord's changed my life. Fourth, quickly, our stand for the Lord will always be counterculture. This seems increasingly and rapidly more true every day. We need to be passionate about living for the Lord and about talking about Christ. And we can take our cues from the disciples. It's interesting in the book of Acts that they're not brash and and cocky and, and harsh and militant. Instead, they're bold and passionate. What's the difference between the two? When we're harsh and militant, it's become about us. When we're bold and passionate, it's become about the Lord. And the temptation of this, that, that we're counterculture, the temptation is going to be the same temptation we had in the seventh grade. You remember the seventh grade, people? Horrible time, right? For me, it was the 70s. We were on bell bottoms. It was bad. What was the temptation of the seventh grade? How do I be part of the in crowd? How do I fit in? How do I get people not to think I'm weird? How, how do I be popular? How, how, how can I get with the people that, that look cool and, and I'm not cool? I, I, I think I experienced this. I don't know if you guys did. You guys are pretty cool. I wasn't. How do I fit in? And that same temptation is now for us as believers. Well, we're not part of the in crowd. We're, we're not popular. It doesn't feel very good. How, how do I fit in? Uh, the church, uh, the, 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 Jesus is calling me to be a committed, set-apart, holy, righteous disciple who's not going to be popular. But, but what do I do with that? Well, what you do with that is recognize that this is counterculture. And we've got to be okay with that. Because we're not trying to please them. We're trying to get to heaven where Jesus will say, well done. Well done. You were faithful to me even despite the difficulty. Well done. How much greater will that reward be than the approval of man and people saying, you are so cool and so popular. Coolness fades. Remember the Fonz? Popularity fades. Ask any celebrity. Wealth and looks fade. But the approval of God will last for all eternity. And God will look at us and say, well done. We'll go, what are you talking about? You did it all. And he'll say, no, you were faithful. 
Let's get one more thought and we'll pray. Turn over just for a minute to Luke chapter 9. And let's finish the thought. Because his approval after our salvation comes from following him as his disciples in the way this text describes. Luke chapter 9, let's read a couple verses here. Start in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice from the text that following Jesus, we're going to take that word apart in a second, following Jesus isn't just a passive, partially committed posture. It's not just whenever you get time or whenever it's expedient for you to do so, follow me. The word follow is used a lot in our culture. We, we follow somebody on Twitter or, or we follow the Packers or, or we follow the latest news. But that's not the meaning of the word here. That's, that's partial, part-time, kind of taking interest, kind of passionate about it, but, but we have other priorities. That's not the meaning of this word. The meaning of the word here is to join as a disciple. In other words, it's an intent, uh, intense, sold-out, unwavering commitment of our lives. Now, when Jesus talks about this later in Luke 18, Peter says to Jesus, well, Lord, we left our homes to follow you. We, 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 we kind of gave up everything. And, and, and really, when we look at it, the disciples' level of commitment, even prior to Acts, is extraordinary. If people did that today, we would say, wow, they are really committed to the work of the Lord. So, so we might think that Jesus would say, Peter, you're right. I'm so proud of you guys. You guys, you guys gave up your families and gave up your homes and your livelihood to follow me. But he says to them, no one who's given up things for me will ever fail to receive blessings from God that go exponentially beyond that cost. What you've given up is significant, but don't think that it is that it is the end-all be-all because you're going to receive so much more from the Lord. It's worth it. Now, the disciples didn't understand that until Jesus left and until the Spirit came. He had said to them, it will be better when I'm gone. And I still struggle with that sentence sometimes because I, how would it be better? The Son of God is walking with them every day and teaching them and showing them his power and, and, and preparing them for what comes ahead. How could it be better than to have Jesus walk beside you every day. And Jesus says, it will be better when the Spirit comes, because He will indwell you. I go off sometimes and I pray, or, or you guys are distracted doing something, or, or, or maybe we have a meal apart, or whatever. I'm, I'm not with you 24 hours a day. There are times when we're not together. But when the Spirit comes, He's going to be with you 24-7. 
He's going to indwell you and fill you, and you're going to have the life-changing presence of God inside you. That's why the disciples were so different in Acts. Before Acts, Jesus kept saying, you say that you're my disciples, but after Acts happens, their discipleship is unquestionable. And they become apostles. The word means delegates or, or ones who are sent forth with orders. You can't be an apostle without being a disciple first. And that's where this text finishes the study. Look back at verse 51. Jesus starts to set his face toward Jerusalem. Excuse me, this is in chapter 9, verse 51. He starts to set his face toward Jerusalem and the cross, and there's a fresh determination. I have to finish the work that I've come to do to sacrifice for you. And that's an important context because as he's walking toward Jerusalem and he's going to the cross, three people come up to him. And there's a discussion about what it means to follow Christ. The first man's all jazz and he's all excited. He's been stirred by what he's seen and what he's heard from Jesus. And he becomes enthusiastic. He says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. I am on board. And Jesus gives him some perspective. He says, I don't even have a home. I don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. Not to mention, and he doesn't, that I'm headed toward Golgotha. I'm headed toward the cross. So you may want to count the cost before you make any more promises. Now, Jesus is not trying to discourage him. He's not trying to prevent him from following him. This man may have even done that. He just says, I want you to make sure that you know what it requires. Then there's the second man, and Jesus looks at him. He doesn't volunteer like the first guy. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And he says, well, I'm willing, but not right now. i got some circumstances going on in my life that, that give me a, a little bit of a pause. And he says one of the most disappointing statements that God can ever hear from us. He says, Lord, I will, but... I will, I'll I'll follow you, but there are some conditions. I'd like to do it, but I got a problem at home. This is a hesitation of his faith. My my dad, I I need to bury him. Now, in Jewish culture, you buried the same day you died. So his dad isn't dead yet. His dad is probably old and frail and and dying. But but he's saying, I got to take care of this first. Let me... Let me take care of of this problem, and and then I'll follow you. And Jesus' response to that isn't harsh or insensitive. It's simply a strong statement that nothing should hinder us from following him. Because how many know there will always be an excuse not to follow today? I can find something every single day that tells me, you don't have time to study your Bible. You don't have time to pray. You don't have time to talk to people about Jesus. You don't have time to minister to the congregation. You don't have time. Paul, you're so busy. Come on. You have an excuse. Pick it up tomorrow. Anybody else experience that? I know I do. Jesus says, ah, that's not what a disciple does. I'm not saying neglect your responsibilities here. I'm saying if those responsibilities become a greater priority than loving me, that's not good. You're not worthy of me at that point. You need to put me first. There are far fewer examples of people that are put Jesus first than those who have kept focusing on the things here at the expense of heaven. 
The first guy is overly enthusiastic without counting the cost. The second guy has got excuses. Then there's the third guy. And he, like number one, seems willing to follow Jesus. But like number two, he has a difficulty he has to overcome. He says, let me go say goodbye to my family. And again, Jesus' response to him shows there are layers to his hesitation. He's looking back like, like Lot's wife. He, he's going, I want to follow, but, oh, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss that. And what? Wait, let me just, let me go back. No, I, I'll follow you. No, but, oh, wow, look, oh. I, Jesus says, you can't keep looking back. Because that means you're not willing to separate yourself from the world and follow me. This is one of the greatest dangers. I know I've talked long, I'm done. This is one of the greatest dangers to our maturation and our discipleship. That we are not willing to give up our old self and separate ourselves from it and to deny self because we still want to keep a hand in it. The Bible says, remember Lot's wife. You can't have your foot in both worlds and say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're going to be walking and looking back and you're going to bump into things and stumble and trip And then we'll say, well, why is God giving me this trial? It's because we keep looking back instead of looking toward the author and finisher of our faith. So Jesus says, no one that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Any farmer knows that you have to plow a straight line. That furrow has to be exactly straight. And the next one has to be parallel to it. Because if you don't, if you do this, you're not using up the land well. It's like if you're mowing, if you've ever mowed and you get distracted, you go like this, you're like, the line is not straight. Or if you're driving, don't do this on the way home. And you're driving and you're looking behind you like, and you're looking down at your text and you're weaving all over the road. I was coming home from Illinois the other night and I was so tired and I'm like, like this and I find the cars weaving. I'm like, I got to wake up. There, there's, there's, a, there's a looking back. There's a, there's a not focus there. He says the person whose heart is divided. Can't be my disciple. Look forward. And that's a lot to digest. It really just comes down to one simple question. Do you love me? And are you willing to live the cost as my disciple? I've struggled over the last 36 to 48 hours. How do you, how do you make that easy? How do you put a nice, positive touch at the end of that? And the conclusion is you can. This is our calling. This is what God is telling us he wants us to do. It's a great calling. Because it's a great privilege to be his disciples. We are the children of God. Think about that just for a minute. I know I've talked a long time. We are the children of God. He declares us His own. You're mine forever. Now live that way. Let's close our eyes. What's hindering you this morning from loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What What's holding you back? What are you clinging to? 
this morning, I beg you, yield it to the Lord. There's nothing that's worth loving more than loving Him. And I pray this morning there would be a breakthrough in your heart and you would surrender it to the Lord and say, I've held on to it long enough and I'm not walking as your disciple. Oh, Lord, I want to live for you. Whatever is dividing your heart, whatever is not fully committed to the Lord, this is the morning to do that. Listen, this is a, this is a hard, hard calling. But he gives us the power and the strength and the courage to live this way. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, even though it's challenging to us, even though you're calling us to something that seems so difficult to us. But Lord, what a privilege you've already given us to be called your children and your disciples, those who bear your name. Lord, we want to do that with joy and with confidence knowing that we're representing you well. But Lord, there are things that we have to be willing to yield to you to be able to do that. So this morning, Lord, I pray the commitment of our hearts from here forward until you return or until we die will be to live as your disciples, not looking back, not craving the old, not discouraged by the opposition, full of joy, full of confidence, full of your spirit, as we live for you. Lord, help me with that this morning. Help my brothers and sisters in this room this morning that we would walk and live as your faithful disciples. We thank you and we praise you. And Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name.